Good morning. What is the sound of summer? What song just completely catapults you into summertime? Is it this one? <laughs> is it this one? Tastes like strawberries on a summer evening. Is it this one? Or is it this one? Ah! Okay. Or is it something more modern? Hey, hey, Havana. Or this year, could it be this one? Cold, cold heart. Heart done by you. Or maybe it's the classic. I, the Beach Boys. There's Summer Band. And the way the sunlight plays upon her head. Or could it be one of those Discover Ireland songs? None of the above. The sound of summer is this. Yay! What a tea up, Darcy. Thank you. So, Kerry's for the taking or Galway's time to shine. Colm O'Rourke joined Des on Morning Ireland. Kerry hot favourites, but they have looked vulnerable at times when they come under pressure. Well, I suppose there'll always be doubts remain about this Kerry team until they actually win one. The golden generation of multiple minor winners, and yet they still haven't won a senior. So there is going to be those doubts about them. But maybe the fact that they beat Dublin in the semi-final and the way they did it, it'll be sort of liberation. Maybe there'll be a liberation national holiday for the 10th of July after that Shawnee O'Shea free, because that could set them free even though I suppose some people would say in the summer, Kerry people don't work very much anyway. They seem to play football and enjoy life, which is the correct balance. But uh, that uh, kick, I think, has set this team free. No pressure on that kick. But what about Galway? For Galway, it's a bit of a free shot given, like, at the start of the summer, they weren't really fancied by anyone. Ooh, Desmond. Anybody looking on the other side of the draw from early on would say that there would have been an easier path to the All-Ireland final. But uh, Galway have to look on it that they may never be here again. And because of that, they have to put in a big performance. I think that they have been improving. And like Kerry against Dublin, I think the game that uh, Galway, when they beat Armagh, I think that that has uh, improved them significantly. This is a team improving rapidly from game to game. Whether or not they can make another giant step forward, I don't know. Because when you look at both semi-finals, Des, I think you'd have to say that the quality of the Kerry-Dublin match was far superior than that of Galway-Derry. The game's not been played yet, though. And as is Derriger, the kids did the county shout-out. Timed to the second for balance. First up, Kerry. I think Kerry are going to win by a last-minute point to goal. Like the last game when Kerry and Dublin are playing. I hope Kerry will win, but you can't trust Galway. Like. And not to be underestimated, Galway. 
because I'm wearing the Galway jersey, I have to do my county proud. I'd be thinking of getting scores. You'd feel nervous and you'd feel excited at the same time. No matter what happens, just keep on going and trying. All eyes on Sunday. And that to soften you up ever so slightly for this next bit. Carbon emissions, I know, because nothing says summer fun like methane. But there was a lot of scrap and sizzle on this one. Frying under the microscope, agriculture. The Climate Change Advisory Council want reductions of between 22 and 30%. But where it's going to fall? Cue an almighty tussle. On Tuesday's morning, Ireland, Mary Wilson took no prisoners when she spoke to Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnell-Logue. Where are you suggesting that the other sectors take up the slack? Are you suggesting it go to transport? For example, we're told that transport, if it has to move in and take up that slack, uh, will have to put one in four cars. That's half a million cars off the road. Do you want to tell that to your constituents in Donegal, that they can't have a second car in the family? It's it's not about that at all. It's about every sector doing the most they possibly can. And as you know, Mary... No, it's really, not really about every sector really doing what they possibly can. It it's is. about targets, Minister, and reaching those targets by 2030 and again by 2050. And in that, it's about every sector doing the most they possibly can. So, for example, there are very significant targets there in relation to transport and the electrification of our car fleet. And that's work that's ongoing. It was it was encouraging to see that now in terms of new cars being bought this year, that half of the cars being, new cars being bought are either electric or hybrid. And that's something we need mm. to see. The momentum around that continues significantly. But every sector is going to have to play its part. And not just every sector, Mary, every person. Because climate change is real. The, the impacts that it's having is real. And, you know, uh, like there's been a complacency for example around food food security uh, built up over the last couple of decades or so which has been very much shook by what we've you know by the illegal invasion mm. of Ukraine but the food security challenge for example of, of the next generation will be from climate uh, change and the, the warming global the, that, that's why it's really important Minister we all know we all know the detail and we're all and, hearing the detail and, what and we're not hearing from you Minister is where agriculture is going to land in playing its part. For example, is agriculture prepared to move away from beef and dairy and move into other crop-based, less greenhouse gas-intensified intensity industries? I think the, the agriculture or agriculture system nationally is a quite a diverse one and it will continue to be. And indeed, there are undoubtedly other opportunities and new emerging opportunities as well, which farmers are embracing and will continue to embrace. Now, our overall target in the Climate Action Plan is a 51% reduction in emissions by 2030. And as it stands, agriculture is the biggest contributor with 37.5% of the total emissions. And on Wednesday, a man more than au fait with the figures is Mr Hot Mess himself. In for Clare, Philip took the heat to Martin Hayden, Minister of State at the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. If energy sector has to carry greater weight because agriculture does get the lower end of the scale, 22% cuts, what that means is you have to put more renewable energy onto the system to compensate for what agriculture is not doing. That means you have to spend more money on reinforcing your grid. That goes on to people's bills. So are you telling me that you are comfortable with the political choice between asking 1.9 million households in the teeth of a cost of living crisis to increase their electricity bills rather than change the business model for 18,000 dairy farmers. I'll tell you what I'm really not comfortable with is 
this narrative of pitting one sector against another and remind you uh, farmers are consumers too but this isn't about you know I, I'm thinking of farmers who are listening to this debate right now who've done a hard morning's work and might be back in their kitchen having a cup of tea but I'm also thinking of the urban dweller okay. who, who, who has listened to a line um, who is sitting in their office right now who has listened to a line that agriculture and food production is bad and that they're a major problem in terms of energy I'm generation I'm not picking on farmers Martin Hayden. I'm asking you to tell me because this is an either or choice I'm asking you to explain Explain to 1.9 million households why their electricity bills should go up because you're not going to ask dairy farmers. We to have change very their ambitious targets in terms of uh, increasing our amount of renewable energy, and agriculture and farmers have a key role to play in that. And la- that's why when this debate happens, all farmers here tend to hear about it is negative that they're a problem and that there's no part of the solution. They're up for being the solution. And if you look at our microgeneration scheme that we will come with later this year. The opportunities for farmers uh, to sustain their income and have a, an income from the likes of microgeneration of putting solar panels on their sheds, the likes of us developing the baseline figures of carbon in our soil so farmers can be rewarded for the sequestration of their um, carbon in their soils, which will be an important element, and the role of anaerobic digestion. We are on this trajectory. Mm-hmm. Farmers are making yeah, okay. very and, significant and and Martin Hayden was at pains to point out that food production is something we do rather well. A moot point for Philip, though. Every single country has a very important thing that they do that is carbon intensive. They make cars in Germany, that's carbon intensive. They mine coal in Poland, that's carbon intensive. If Irish farmers are to plead some kind of an exceptional case and everybody else was to do the same thing, we'd get nowhere. I can't believe you just made the comparison of uh, car manufacturing, uh, you know, uh, coal mines in Poland with you know, our grass-based pasture system for producing beef and dairy products. For, they for, are carbon-intensive activities, would you, Minister. What, what agriculture does, it takes an inedible protein in grass and through our livestock system, turns that into an edible protein for humans. We do that really well and really efficiently here in Ireland with our pasture-based system. That, you know, if we don't do that here, the world won't stop eating beef tomorrow if we, stop, if we reduce our herd here. Well, that question the, the, is The world won't re- reduce its intake of dairy, but that produce will be produced in other parts of the world less carbon intensively um, than we do and less efficiently But that is do. open for debate. I mean, this is not about food security. We, we import more calories into this country than we export. If this was really about our food security on the island of Ireland, you would be reorienting the... But um, our, our food production system... No, hang on, is let me f- finish the question. You, you would be re- reorienting farming towards domestic production rather than an export market, wouldn't you? No, because our food production systems are international now. You know, how our food um, is is traded, you know, the population of the world is... Um, is destined to grow significantly in the coming years. We produce this food very well. We need to take a broader view than just saying we should just produce okay. enough food for ourselves and let that be but it. Take, we we take export. That, take that broader view then. Do you really think that we are still going to, in 20 years' time, be exporting butter to San Diego and yogurt to Saudi Arabia? I believe we produce that food more efficiently than most parts of the world. And I don't think we should be um, curtailing the production of food. I think we can produce that food much more efficiently into the future. And that's what we're working on doing. Well, also on the line, but not in a head-to-head, was Ushin Coughlin of Friends of the Earth. And Philip flipped hats. Farmers are the agents of change here. And if the conversation gets bitter and if farmers feel backed into a corner, nobody's going anywhere quickly. 
Well, look, I have I have every sympathy for, for farmers. I actually think they have been misled by both government policy and by their farming representative organisations. They've been led down something of a cul-de-sac in investing in what is an unsustainable model of farming around beef and intensive beef and dairy. And the, the problem is, for the last 10 years of Fine Gael-led governments, until very recently, we had no climate action plan until 2017, whereas we had two 10-year plans... In well, you, yes, but you were in government from 2011. I thought you didn't want to debate me, Minister. If you were in government from 2011 until 2021, and there was no climate action plan from 2012 to 2017, and in that time you developed a new 10-year plan for the expansion of agriculture and for and you, and you went all in on lifting the milk quotas. It's a bit like investing more in peat in 20, oh, 2005 or investing more in gas now. It's a cul-de-sac that can't be sustained. You're left with stranded assets, whether they're agricultural or fossil fuels, and you're left having to compensate farmers uh, for having to com- to come off. But what about the possibility of innovation? We are clever creatures. Maybe with the right technology, we could all scrape by. Fairness to what the minister says, though, the technologies exist in transport, they exist in the energy sector right now. In the agriculture sector, they're still in an R&D phase and trying to find out how they get there. Should they not be cut a little bit of slack in order to get that right? And in the meantime, we rely on offshore wind production. We rely on electric vehicles and buses and uh, cycle lanes and so on to do more heavy lifting in the short term. But I think that is the plan already. When you're you're giving agriculture, proposing a 30% target for agriculture and 60% for the rest of the economy, that is to to take up that, to give that consideration you're mentioning. And the targets in the, in the other sectors, in offshore wind, in transport, are really very demanding and many of the experts are, are concerned we can't meet those unless, like you said, every farmer takes up their, their, their best practice. Unless, you know, we really adopt cycling and walking and we have the bicycle lanes and we have the buses and we have the offshore wind, we won't hit the existing targets in those sectors. And all of those other sectors have agreed to the maximum level of cut in the range that were published. It's only the agriculture sector that hasn't. And the minister said, why is there all this negativity around agriculture? The only reason that that may be the case is because it's the only sector mounting a sustained lobbying campaign to do less than the the top of the range. It's the only sector coming out and saying this far Mm. and no further. We aren't seeing that from the other Mm. sectors. And all of that before the news on Thursday that calamity. Provisional figures from the Environmental Protection Agency put emission levels increasing by almost 5% since last year. A tripling of coal and oil in the electricity sector and in the agricultural sector, an increase of 3%, the second year in a row that emissions rose. And we go back to where we started, Morning Ireland, this time with the Director General of the EPA, Laura Burke, who was curiously optimistic. Because agriculture is such a large percentage of our emissions, a 37.5%, of course, any less impact uh, with regard to emission cuts on agriculture means it does have to be taken up by other sectors. But overall, what I would say is every sector, each and every sector needs to make cuts. And that should not be seen as a purely negative thing. There is a real opportunity here to change the way we live, to have cleaner cities, to have, uh, you know, much warmer, more comfortable homes. So we tend to frame this debate in a very negative, but in fact, it can be such a transformation for the better across all sectors, including the agriculture sector. All eyes on next week as to what percentage actually comes out in the wash. Back in a bit. Welcome back. 
As predicted, it was indeed very hot. For some, a glorious blast of sunshine. For others, it was a retreat indoors to the shade. But however you felt about it, it didn't last very long. News just in from Killaloo, (laughs) Philip. The thunder and the rain have started (laughs) in Killaloo. It's all over, folks. The national emergency has come to an end. Normal service has been resumed with the Irish weather. Yep, by Wednesday, kind of done. But one thing the hot weather did bring was litter. And every RTE reporter with a mic could be found elbow deep in the marigolds or observing. And here is Evelyn O'Rourke with a selection of dirty nappies she picked up on (laughs) Ireland's beaches while out with those who are actually doing the cleaning up after the rest of us. Who did you meet? Well, I like to observe work, as you know, Philip. (laughs) I'm glad you clarified us from the beaches and not from, you know, my kitchen floor. That cleared up. Evelyn took us to an on Tashka Clean Coast campaign at Greystones Beach in County Wicklow. Biddy, you have just uncovered some treasure here. Yes. It's a big coffee cup. Yeah, a big one, yeah. I'm just abandoned here. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. I've had two jars of baby food, four socks, all odd, and a pair of underpants. Oh, somebody... the underpants. Oh, the underpants. Okay. They went straight into the bag, didn't they? <laughs> yes, 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 oh, the, the underpants are in there. So what else do you have in your bag? <laughs> Paper plates that are very ripped up. And then the usual plastic bottles. Yeah, an awful lot of plastic bottles. And cigarette butts, they're the ones yeah. that are on the map as it's well. Yeah, funny secret of places. Oh, yeah. people hiding out with yeah. this. Baby wipes. They're awful. Sometimes you get dog poop bags full of dog poop and just abandoned. I think people genuinely probably think that they're going to come back and collect it because they can't be bothered carrying it. But it's, you know, it's, it's worse than anything really because, I mean, the dog poop eventually might do something. But the plastic bag with the dog poop in it won't. It's like so Little Rover has a poop. Big Rover has a big, big, big... <laughs> Why this work for you? Because I like this beach. This beach is wonderful. It's such a resort. It's fantastic. But really, when you sort of dig down and you find something ghastly underneath you, I mean, it's a bit off-putting. And anyway, the big thing I think is this. Sometime or other, the sea will come in and all this plastic will float out there and do untold damage. I mean, that's worse. Evelyn with Philip. But does Sandy Cove Beach in Dublin maybe have a better class of litter, Southside and all? Not so much. Here's Angus Cox on Morning Ireland found two towels and uh, actually in the water which I, I pulled out of the water I swam down to the bottom and found this one here the, the stripy one just at the hatch at the 40 foot and then round at the far side I found uh, the white towel yesterday they collected something like like over 30 towels and um, well this morning we found a lot of abandoned clothes a lot of broken things like towels and a lot of men's pants and men's swimming togs no women's might I just add there lovely well the south side covered Fergal Keen on drive time headed to Borough Beach in North County Dublin with a member of the council cleaning team we took um, three tractor trailer loads um, and five van loads off it so about 10 tonnes off Sutton Beach alone. And when was it cleaned last? It would have been yesterday morning. Ten tonnes of rubbish in yeah. one day? Yeah. What are you finding? We saw pictures of bottles of every other type of rubbish. And disposable barbecues and beverage bottles, everything, sanitary wear, towels, ladies' sanitary towels, all that type of thing. Everything, bit of everything in it. Food, wrappers, the whole lot. It's pretty incredible yeah. that people leave this it's stuff behind. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking, and it's um, just the respect for for nature, uh, or disregard for that is it's, it's unbelievable. 
And such was the volume and scale of the litter that Drive Time brought in Professor Pete Lunn, head of the Behavioural Research Unit at the ESRI, to work out just what was going on in the heads of people who shake out the old picnic rug and simply walk away. We know if you put more bins closer to people so they have less far to walk and the capacity is higher and they're more obvious, they get used more and litter goes down. Uh, We also know if you make bins easier to find and more attractive, they're used more. And that's a problem, actually, because often architects and local authorities don't want to do that. They want to hide bins because they think bins are ugly things. So they put them in colours that are sort of greys and browns that kind of blend into the background Mm. and can't be seen. And actually, that makes them less likely to be used and increases litter. And that's what the studies show. So there are now groups of behavioural scientists around the world who are trying to get together with architects and test designs Um, and designers and test designs where they make bins bigger, easier to find, but actually more attractive, doing things like putting works of art on them. And, you know, you might have seen some of the kind of telephone connection uh, boxes that are around town that have kind of little works of art on them. They're trying things like that with litter bins to try and make them easy to find, but actually sort of not an eyesore. And the research evidence suggests that when you do that, actually more people are going to use them, provided they don't get too full. My goodness. So we we need good looking bins now. Well, I'm only telling you what the research evidence suggests. <laughs> no, I'm, you know, I'm not I mean, blaming do, you. Do I'm I just... think, you know, do, do I think that people should take their leisure, put it back in their bag and take it home with them? Of course I do. But the funny thing is, if you survey everyone, that's what they'll say. And the interesting thing is that there is a significant minority of people and they um, who do litter, particularly, as I say, when they see other people not yeah. doing and they see litter around them. Actually, remarkably few people will leave, leave litter if they are in a clean environment and where there is no excuse because there is clearly a bin to use. And that tension between bins, however good looking, and personal responsibility was explored on Liveline when Owen called Joe. And Joe was bringing a certain world-weary ennui to it all. We all need to look after the beach. We all need to carry away our waste, carry away our litter. But this, is the, this is as predictable, this call, and, and thank you for contacting us. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. Wait, 1-8-715-815. But this call is as, is as predictable as the fact that the heat wave was never as bad as we're told, never as <laughs> But never as good, never as bad as we're told. Told it might uh, might be, and it looks like looking out the the window here when I was walking in the studio, it's, it's uh, raining here in Donnybrook. Um, so the so the heat wave was well and truly over. It lasted for twelve hours. You think it was twelve years the way the country uh, reacted. But this 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 happens. Why does the council not know that Borough Beach is on a dark line? It's a short run from Dublin. It's a lovely spot. It's a lovely village. There's a pier. There's loads of lovely fish and chip shops and coffee shops. So why why weren't the council prepared? They're they're the ones who were paid to do this. Agreed. Now I know I know Agreed. about I know I about individual. Personal, yeah, I think there's a personal responsibility here as well. That well, not in Ireland, there isn't be because but it's the know? same all the time. But it shouldn't You're, be predictable. You know that I suppose that's that's the that's the bit that the bugbear with me is. You know, yes, we have all these these organisations and groups there that are paid with taxpayers' money to come and do the job of, of keeping the place clean and whatever, but that doesn't that doesn't negate or doesn't stop a I know that, I know that, I'm not, and I'm not trying to know. say, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to be realistic here. Then Anne-Marie phoned in. Your contribution, please, Anne-Marie, um, to, this, to this rubbish discussion. Yeah, <laughs> and just that comment that you made that, you know, be realistic, we're Irish. I have a huge issue with that. Okay. Number one, you should never be realistic because it's the most commonly travelled road to mediocrity. We should always be aspirational. Here, here, here. And also, I am Aspera, Irish. Aspera and I most certainly Aspera. don't leave it. 
Astra uh, yeah. ad Astra, reach for the stars. Astra ad Astra, yeah, yeah. as well. Um, with, we don't, I leave no trace. It's a very, very good national slogan and I think it, we should, if everyone incorporated mm. that, leave no trace. I'm here in the west of Ireland at the moment. I was in Strandhill Beach in Sligo and I noticed there was no bins that I could see. And okay. I thought, brilliant, bring it home. But as Joe pointed out, perhaps the obvious, we do not have a beach culture. Copacabana, we are not. Have you ever been on holiday, lucky enough to be on holidays in Spain? Yes. Like, yeah, there's bars on the beach. There's bars on the beach. There's, there's, all... hang on, hang on. There's sun loungers on the beach. The beaches, and the beaches, by the way, are crystal clean because the beaches are treated like an amenity. So uh, if, if somebody did throw down a bag of rubbish, they would be checked by someone else sitting there saying, hang on a minute, don't throw your rubbish there. This is the beach. And I would do that. But I see, do we, we don't live in Spain. Yeah, we live in Ireland. We live in Ireland. It goes into meltdown <laughs> when we hit twenty six degrees. It's laughable. But are you saying it's a cultural issue that Irish people are intrinsically? No, dirty? I'm saying our beaches are not built. You, you can't go onto any beach in Ireland. Now this is self self explanatory. You cannot you cannot go onto any beach in Ireland and see a bar, a restaurant, a cafe, a chinquichita, whatever they call them in Spain. You can't go on and see their beautiful loungers. You can't go on and see people going up and down, entertaining other people, offering massages or whatever, because that's not the climate we have. The only time people descend on beaches in Ireland is when the Met Office tell us two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, they were telling us that yesterday was going to be uh, Vesuvius in Ireland and no, nobody was prepared for it. And, well, now, it all goes back to one simple thing, education. You look well, at well, the well, you, you, you want us all to go back to school? No, I leave no trace. There's public public advertisements no and public uh, responsibility campaigns do have they, a, do have a going, place. Leave I, no trace works very well. Yeah, but, it's, leave no but trace. how long has that slogan? How long has that slogan been around? Leave no trace. Leave no trace. Not leave particularly no trace. long. I think it's not. I don't yeah. think it's that particularly it's long. Really but working, it's really working, isn't it? I find it very. It's really well, it works for me, and I'm Irish. Okay, well, there, well, there we have a live line. And speaking of cultural stereotypes and the Irish. Drinking, fighting, uh, being bad-tempered, potatoes, holding grudges. No, not your family Sunday lunch. This, according to Nathan Mannion from the Irish Emigration Museum, EPIC, is what comes up when you Google the Irish are known for. And their campaign is to challenge these stereotypes. And as he told Brendan Courtney in For Ryan, even the seemingly positive ones aren't always so benign. I can't help but think about my history lessons and, and, and think about everything you're saying. And uh, to a large extent, and I think a lot of people accept this without being too political, that it's it's largely down to um, colonialism, isn't it? Well, yeah, certain aspects of it. Again, like I'm saying, a lot of the material that we view, like these stereotypes are created through particular lenses, you know, one being kind of true, as I said, kind of stereotypical cartoons that are originating in Britain, others, you know, true anti-immigrant sentiment in North America, and even some that would be perceived as positive actually have um, negative roots. So the look of the Irish, for example, is one that came across during this, where you would think that's a relatively positive trait, but actually it was first applied to Irish immigrants in Australia and in North America who became miners, and whenever they would strike gold or silver, um, it was labelled as the look of the Irish. But really what that was, was saying that it wasn't a result of their hard work or perseverance. They just got lucky and they weren't capable of, you know, having a kind of scientific approach to mining. They were just striking it lucky. It was a bit of a begrudgery going on there as well. We just can't get a break, can we? I know. <laughs> oh, that is interesting. 
But as a nation, we do get around. And when another Brendan, O'Connor this time, spoke to DJ and musician and all-round reggae fan Alan Madigan, we learned that many of reggae's biggest names owe it all to one Irish woman. Was it an Irish nun was very involved Sister in, in, Ignatius, the yeah. Sisters of Mercy, believe it or not, right. had ran a school called the Alpha Boys School, apparently. She was strict with discipline, but she took what were known as wayward children. Okay. In, like guys this that were This is in hopeless. Havana, is it? No, this is in Kingston. Oh, in Kingston, yeah. sorry. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. But a lot of the sheet music they had would have been Cuban melodies yeah. because they were all... She okay. no school musicians. And what did she... Was she teaching them brass instruments? Yes, or, yeah. they got a gift of brass of the Catholic Church or something. Originally, they were a pipe and drum band in 1890 or something, yeah. but they got brass instruments granted them by some genius. And then she took Enrico Rodriguez of specials fame and Scatolite's fame. Right. After Scatolite, loads of huge figures in the history. Yellow Man was like a, an albino street kid. And he became the biggest rapper in Jamaica for a while. And she, they were all products of the Alpha Boy School. So, yeah. We're Amazing. <laughs> and we'll take any excuse for a bit of this. So good. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Clowns, and not just any old clowns, Icelandic clowns. I found it advertised on Facebook. Yes. Uh, and we got this article that there was a clown shortage, you know. Yes, yes. And we were like, finally, something we yeah. can do something about, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, so we just, you know, well, went for it. <laughs> yeah, and it's good, you know. So the next time someone calls us a clown, we, we can we, be like, yeah, we registered yeah, we everything, register, you know. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. qualified. Yeah, really yeah we're qualified ones. You know. Amelia and Gritter, they're in clown school in Navan, coming here from Reykjavik to take the red noses right off our faces. And I'm not quite sure why this item worked, but it kind of did. You're, you're nearly running away with the circus. What, what, did, what did your parents say when you went to them and said, I'm going to go, Well, go. mine weren't that surprised. Really? You know. no, mine were like, you know, <laughs> just happy to get rid of me. You know. Mine still don't believe it. Don't. <laughs> no, they don't believe it. I think they just think I'm in a summer house in Iceland or something. <laughs> yeah, I had to call her dad up and convince him a bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love you too. I love this. Yeah, so, so what sort of what sort of things are you learning there? Uh, well, that's a good question. Yeah, we're, we're juggling, you know, yes, stuff juggling, like that. Yes, yeah. Falling over. Yeah, it was, it was a, a, a whole day where we were just falling over yeah. again yeah. and again and yeah, again yeah, yeah, yeah. and again. You might think stuff that's like funny, that. but I know a guy who went to Paris. Yeah. yeah. And he studied specialized yeah. in falling. He he did in the, the Marcel same. Marceau. College. Yeah, yeah, the guy who was teaching us, he learned there. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. So, at what stage of your studies are you at? Uh, um, we, we think we're we're we've we've become clowns. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We, oh, we, we have, have, a, we oh, have yeah. a certificate. Okay. That stage yeah. We are. I think it's the Irish Clown Association, something like yeah. that. We're we're allowed to work as clowns at least. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sure. Which I thought was kind of just a birthright, but you know, <laughs> I guess you have to earn it. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, it does strike me as something that you can't learn to yeah, be, doesn't yeah, it? Yes, yeah, it yeah, does. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it does strike me as well that you were probably 
you have the gene, the clowning yeah, gene. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yes, Maybe yeah. a bit too few, too many of them. Yeah, yeah. 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 Did it come from your mother's side or your father's side? You uh, reckon? Yeah, both, both, both sides. Both, both plenty, sides. plenty clown genes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Ray, being Ray, was all. Where do you see yourself in five years' time? What's your plan? You can't be a clown all your life, you know. So now that you're armed with your with your very large oversized clown certificate, yes, yeah. yes, yes, written in bright colours. Exactly. Well, what do you do with that? Do you do you present we just it? Hang it on the wall. <laughs> yeah, we hang it on the wall. Yeah. That's I think that's pretty much yeah. it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so is there a time when you have to say, well, you know, I have to be an adult. I have to do serious things like uh, consider training in something serious get a mortgage that sort of thing no well now no. I'm thinking about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just basically for fun you know yeah. um, but uh, what was the question again <laughs> that was Ray Ryan on the other hand headed away perhaps a man in need of a break I, I need to hear this what is this Why am I enjoying this so much? If I was a seagull, I'd be kind of going, yeah, I'm into this. Like, I find this kind of, um, I find this kind of uh, complimentary. They've taken my, ah, and they've kind of given it a bit of a beat. And suddenly I don't feel less, I don't feel like a parasite anymore. Like, I, I was a scavenger up until 10 minutes ago. Now I could be, you know, hanging out with some DJ and uh, you know, in a, in a, in a, at a festival somewhere. Go, yeah. Mm. Do you hear that little one? That that's me. Said the seagull. Go, I'm, I'm on that track. I'm in the green room. I've got access all areas here. Ah. You take all the time you need, sir. No judgment here. <clears throat> Over on arena. Gabriel Byrne. He is in a new film called Death of a Ladies' Man. It's set in Canada and Ireland and he plays a character called Samuel O'Shea, a poetry professor, serial womaniser and addict. He spoke to Sean Rocks and Arena and it was a cracker of an interview. Wide-ranging, frank and insightful. Well worth a listen back. But to start with, the character of Samuel O'Shea. I found the character of, you know, the ladies, man. The, the expression, you know, uh, he likes the ladies. This man who defined himself by um, his sexuality and his relationship uh, to women. He, he's not a guy who respects or cares about women. Mm. He's a man who, um, as I said, takes, um, takes what he wants. And I think our attitudes to that kind of man have have changed and part of the film is that he finds himself stranded in this other world from another another time and can't understand why uh, it doesn't work anymore a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's getting older and that he is yeah. beginning to see his mortality and um being as dissolute and irresponsible as he had been in the past is beginning to seem um, for sure not a way uh, to live the life. And how to live a life was at the centre of this film, with perhaps parallels with Byrne's own memoir and one-man show, Walking with Ghosts. 
this film, he, he's a drug addict. He thinks he's a functioning mm-hmm. drug addict. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. alcohol is involved in his life. And obviously, um, alcohol was uh, very central uh, to the story that you were telling in your own uh, one-man mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. was it about the way Matt Bissonette had written about addiction? W- was he saying or telling this story in a new way or in a way that spoke to you particularly? Well, um <clears throat> Matt um, had struggled himself with with addiction. And when you were absorbed in addiction, whether it's sex addiction or addiction to buying things or materialism or uh, work or alcohol or drugs or whatever, um, you are missing the things in life that are really, truly important. And in this film, what he understands is that he's missed, really missed his life, living life, and he's missed love. And he's missed family because of of of, of this um, addiction. Mm. Now, I, I remember reading somewhere that Carl Jung, the great um, psychotherapist, he said that um, addicts and addiction it was a spiritual struggle. Um, addiction was um, somebody looking for some kind of a spiritual answer to life, and that that really stuck with me. That idea that. It's not something to be laughed at or deified mm. or not spoken about. It's actually something that we need to confront. And silence and shame and ignoring the problem will not help the individual because it's easy to hide within a cultural identity. And in Ireland, we have that cultural identity. When I was growing up, I never thought to look, think that taking drugs, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, that there was anything wrong with that. I thought that's just the way it was. And when I suffered excruciating hangovers, I thought, well, you know, that's the way it is. Um, And I had to confront myself, uh, just like the character in the book, because I realized that I was missing, I was missing out on, on the really important things of life. And he talked about his hope that in some way, the work might help others. I wasn't looking for what the you know Americans sometimes call closure I just wanted to look at it for myself but not in an introverted kind of selfish way because there's no real point in doing that what I wanted to do with the memoir and the thinking behind the the, the, the film as well is that you put these things out there and you hope that somebody uh, somewhere will be sitting on a couch or in a chair and say Maybe that's me. That's the whole point. Of it. Yeah. I want people to know who I am so that in some way they might get to know themselves because torment and pain grow in silence and shame. It, it, it goes back in some ways to what you were saying about wanting to be a good ancestor. There, there's a touch of that involved yes. in what you're saying, isn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. I think there is. I mean, not, uh, we, we live here in Maine and I, I look at you know, all the trees that we've planted and say, well, they're for me a little bit, but they're for the people coming afterwards. It behoves me to try to deal with my genetic inheritance so that perhaps by me sorting my house out, um, it's a way of me taking responsibility for my life and also handing on to the next generation a little bit of tidying up that may may help them because I, I, I don't want people who come after me to suffer in the same way that maybe my ancestors suffered. And as he told Sean, pain and suffering are universal, regardless of your postcode. 
I often think when I'm passing somebody in the street, you know, who's homeless and they have their hand out. And I think to myself, of people who say, don't be giving him money, he'll only drink it. My answer is, let him, let him drink it. Can you imagine anything worse than waking up in a doorway and having no money with an excruciating hangover and that you're addicted to something that you don't have the money uh, yeah. to deal with? That's an incredibly painful um, um, place to be. And that man or woman is not in that doorway because they choose that as a way of life. Life has dealt them cruel blows and, you know, for one reason or another, they weren't able to deal with. But whether you're living in an apartment in Dublin 4 or you're in a doorway, and I made this point in the book, it doesn't matter if you're drinking the most expensive bottle of wine uh, on the menu or you're drinking out of a flagon of cider. The reason you do it is the same and the consequences are the same. But we tend to think, oh, you have to be like down on your hands and knees before you're denigrated as being this shameful, uh, awful person. We don't extend enough compassion to people who are suffering and suffering they are. What a lovely man. And this is how the interview ended. I've taken enough, uh, enough of your time and it's a lovely day here in Maine. And I'm going to head off now into the hills and um, think to myself, oh, Jesus, maybe I shouldn't have said that or I should have said this. You know the way you know the way you get. I'm still thinking about a play I did in Dublin in 1978 and thinking to myself, Jesus, maybe I shouldn't have done that in this way. So that's the kind of person I am. Okay, Sean. Listen, Gabriel, thanks. Gabriel Byrne with Sean Rox on Arena. And on that note, that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.